welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast series. I'm Nina Lockwood, founder and director of Intuitive Interim and Executive Search. Throughout this series, I will be sharing engaging conversations with talented leaders from across the UK transport sector. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Matt Rice, Route Director for North and East Route, part of the Eastern Region for Network Rail. Matt talks us through his career to date in Network Rail since leaving uni in Wales in the early 2000s, shares his views on leadership, his views on remote working, on people-centred leadership. It's such an interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Good morning. How are you? All right. You? Yeah, yeah. Really well, thank you. It's an absolute joy to see you. I really always enjoy our conversations. You You bring a different perspective and I love that about talking to you. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, for, for anyone who doesn't know you, let me give you your full title. So Matt Rice, Route Director North and East Route, which is part of the Eastern Route for Network Rail. Um, you have a rather significant team over the other side of the Pennines to me. I'm looking forward to hearing more about the day job. But before we do that, I'm going to start in true intuitive insights fashion and ask you to take us back right back to the beginning, in terms of coming out of education and into the real world of work. What decisions did you make and why? Where have you been? What have you done? And what does a week in the life of a route director for Network Rail look like? Okay, quite a lot in that. So let's, uh, I'll forget the good bits and remember the bad bits. Um, Again, thanks for giving me a bit of time to talk about myself. Those who know me probably won't be surprised. (laughs) Probably going to enjoy this, but I, I hope this, I hope that if people do end up listening to it, it's, it's interesting and, if nothing else, useful for whatever brings them to it. So I I finished university in deepest, darkest Wales in the early 2000s. And I didn't go through university with a real hard-edged desire to do any one job in particular. Frankly, I was quite driven by, I quite, despite, I ended up going to, I went to boarding school on a charitable scholarship. And I think all I really wanted to, if honest, Nina, when I was in my early 20s, is secure a decent standard of living. Okay. Yeah, I just like I knew I needed a good job. I'd done a bit of work. Like I put myself a degree. What am I going to do with myself? Um, I took some careers advice, and pretty much the, the chap in university said, "Look, you you obviously got a capability with people. Some of the stuff you did in university, you quite like big things, big interest in multiple things. Why don't you look at um, the police?" And 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 actually, there's this company. Bearing in mind this was early two thousand. There's this new railway entity, which was relatively new at the time, called Network Rail. I think. Um, and I applied for both. I also applied to work for a sports tour company in Cheshire, just outside Manchester, um, which frankly at the time would have been the dream job, but it was like 4p an hour, like slave labour, but you got to travel <laughs> over the world taking sports teams on tours. So I quickly liked the idea of it, dismissed it based on the fact that I thought I needed some quality of life. So um, applied for the police at the same time as applied for Network Rail. Uh, I was fortunate to be accepted to both. And, and it was a real toss up between the two. I knew more about the police, had a greater insight to what they did, frankly, than rail. But mm. but and Network Rail were probably, having looked at it, because it was Greater Manchester Police, Network Rail had a national pull, so it gave me more options. Um, and a probably more diverse job entry point. So you're going into the police as a graduate police officer. It, it was quite a clear career path for the first five or six years from memory, where it may have changed now, but uh, but the, the rail Network Rail was basically, look, come on board, we'll give you a reasonable salary, you know, we get will help you transition to professional life 
we'll place you in a big city and we'll give you a year just to find your feet as part of a graduate scheme. So that's what I did. I moved from Aberystwyth in Wales to Coventry, uh, kicked into Network Rail's graduate scheme, did, did quite a conventional royal tour, trying to learn bits and pieces, most of which, if I'm honest at the time, probably just went over my head. But I never forget recognising very quickly, because I'd been at, again, I mentioned school, quite, I'd been brought up in quite a hierarchical environment. I found it quite comfortable in, at that point in what I thought was a good way, you know, yeah. to be in this structured environment where you could look on all charts and go, well, they do that and they do that and they're that person. They must be important. And it was it was a comfortable place to learn. Um, I then got myself a prop, my first proper job off the grad scheme in, in maintenance in Derby. But that, and, and it was dealing with a lot of line side neighbours, a lot of the external people that handle, that interact with us every day, more often than not apologising for some of the the way life goes when you live near the railway. Right. You know, we do well, We even now we do well-meaning things, but not quite in a way that respects and understands the people that live the other side of our boundary. So yeah. I did a lot of that. Again, well, I, was, I was a junior member of quite a senior team, so it was a very early opportunity to be part of a group where for most of my time in meetings with the boss and his team, I didn't have much to say. But I could listen, and God, I was learning. Just like note taking, and much of much of what they I read at university, and what you read now about successful leaders was about take good notes, take good record of it, and, and note down lots yeah. of stuff, even if you don't quite know why it's interesting, so you can reflect on it. So I picked that up pretty quickly as a learning attribute, and, and it's probably paid dividends ever since. I then moved into corporate affairs in Birmingham, doing community relations, so again dealing directly with lots of people who had lots of questions for us. Um, Moved to some of the sponsorship roles. Did some fabulous work with Chilton on what was called Evergreen Three. So that was, oh, uh, so let's say two thousand nine to two thousand eleven. Um, and just as a bit of detail on that because it's so relevant to where I think the industry could, could go now. Yeah. That was Chilton under their current construct, looking to borrow a quarter of a billion quid to enhance the railway the way they thought it should be enhanced from a from a top point of view to yeah. deliver genuine revenue and passenger experience. And going through that journey with some real sort of pivotal people in my career, people whose names people maybe know, like I, I got to work with Adrian Shooter quite closely, wow. yeah. Joe Kay very closely, Graham Cross very closely, and some more and sort of some some more local line managers were very influential to me there. But those three names and watching them operate, and then also watching some real big hitters in the industry, and I won't name them because they're still in there, who trying to work out how to position Network Rail to support children as children were trying to demonstrate that they could do it better than us was fascinating right. from a leadership sort of point of view yeah. but also as an industry construct so I did that into the late noughties and into the early 20 teens if you like um I then went and did some stuff in London as a commercial lead for First Capital Connect interesting job but the, I think the real turning point in my career was when I took on a timetable leadership job in Milton Keynes I did two and a half years in that to about 2015 a real good combination of whilst it was quite an office-based job it was I, I ended up with about two or three hundred people working for me um, not directly, clearly, um, but in the production of the timetable in a way that they're, they're still doing now in Milton Keynes. They've not long settled into the new quadrant building. Mm. So it's a, a real eye-opener to me as to how much I really enjoyed just leading teams. I couldn't really, no one subject to my rail career has really got me more excited than the other, but the people element is like, okay, coming into work and having to help individuals and get the best out of their time and work for whatever reason they're there. And for whatever purpose they're, they're sort of delivering against, it was clear to me then that when people said, what gets you out of bed? You know, uh, there's something in that for me. It's a real emotional driver that I continue to explore now about why do I find that? So what what deep in my past means I'm so driven by that. Yeah. Um, trying to rattle through this because you don't want to be a boring CV, but there was another, again, another pivotal point. Um, much 
to my surprise, I got a chance to go and work in the Middle East with Network Rail Consulting. Right. That was one of those decisions that I did a load of pros and cons. I even told my boss, another a lady called Fiona Dolman, who I um, I hold very dear professionally, but also whilst I haven't seen her for a long time personally, she was fan- fabulous for me as a line manager, as a friend. I went. I actually I got the job offered in the Middle East. I went in on a Friday and said, Do "You know what, Fiona, I've, I've, I've accepted the job, but I'm going to turn it down. I want to stay with you." And then over the weekend, I changed my mind again. I really flip flopped because I was trying to do it rationally, and rationally, I was always going to stay in MK. I was always going to grow that part, but I was missing the fact that I was getting a pretty rare, unique opportunity. Only six of us got to go and live in Dubai and work in Saudi Arabia for Network Rail. Six people, and I don't think that ever happened again. So I eventually said, you may have a long list of 20 things that are good to stay, but there's maybe two that are good to go. And I decided, we, we as a family decided to go. Um, and it was fun. For a whole host of reasons, it was the best career thing I ever did. I think to try and pick one or two. When you work in the monopoly of NR, it's hard to really empathise what it's like on the other side until you can find it. And I've never worked topside. Still haven't, actually. Yeah. Which, um, in the UK. But I went to Saudi Arabia alongside Serco and Freightliner as partners. So I got yeah. real insight what drove them. But we then were the were the supplier to the Royal family, the monopoly in Saudi Arabia. Right. We were on their terms in their country. So kind of the, the eye open about what it's like to be it's quite difficult to understand diverse inclusion as a white middle class Englishman. <laughs> you go work in the Middle East, yeah. yeah you get it's not look, I'm like, quite you can ever that. Yeah. You get an eye opener. You get an yeah. eye so 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 that that whole experience the, the, the shot in the arm, the sort of amplification of resilience, business nows, commercial acumen was was something I could never have dreamed of when I thought, well, actually, in the Middle East, you know, it's tax-free and sun's good and all that good stuff. I, it was, without doubt, a key part of me coming back to the UK. I ended up landing in York because York's a great place. If you can live in Dubai, you've got to find somewhere nice to go after, and York's great. Uh, very quickly spent a lot of time with Rob McIntosh, formative in terms of where my career's grown. And without that move to the Middle East, I'm I'm 100% certain I'm not going to be in the running for four years ago to be a route director. There's just no way. I might have had some capability. I might have had some some else, but that accelerated period, I think, um, was was an absolutely key moment. Yeah. Um, I would say that my overall performance in that role in the Middle East, in hindsight, was pretty poor. My delivery wasn't great. I look back and think, oh, God, how did I even survive it? But I did. I bet you look back and think, could I have done? I took more from it than I gave to it, not through lack of effort. I just didn't have some of the skills and the, again, the now that I have now that I would have been benef- benefited from having then. Okay. So again, um, see, just, go on. Just, just let me pause you one second because I want to come back to something that you said, which I, then will current kind of, I think, take Please. us forward into this next bit. When you, when you mentioned, when you first mentioned the opportunity in the Middle East, you said, to my surprise, yeah. in this kind of, well, why, why would they offer it me? There's <laughs> only six people so why are they offering it me? And I appreciate that I might be putting you in an uncomfortable position here, but I'm going to do it anyway. Why did they pick you then? So in hindsight, with the benefit of hindsight now, and yeah. even even bearing in mind what you just said to me, that in your view, your delivery wasn't quite what it would have been if you'd go back and do it now. Why did they choose you? What is it about you that made them think uh-huh. you needed to be one of the six if you thought you weren't good enough? Yeah, you, you are well. So you are picking at a work in progress, as, as I as, <laughs> and look, I think it's a. After, I think it's the, the term imposter syndrome has become quite well known now. I don't think it was even say years ago 
why did they so there's two there's two elements of my thinking there nigga there's it's quite a basic kind of like one in six statistically that's a good chance so that, that i didn't think like just do it for that basis but i think i i i, I got through school with some pretty basic a levels just i fudged my way through a two two at a good time as often people talk about um and i hold intellect and cape like that that kind of academic capability quite in quite high regard and I think I've never really lost that. So when I'm being interviewed and when you're being assessed, yeah. I think I still think, well, what, 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 what do you see? What do you see in me? And, and I've had, I have had interviews where I've completely flunked them and not got jobs. And some of the most powerful feedback, and I, again, it's still a work in progress of people have said to me, you came into the interview and you weren't you, you didn't, you didn't a bring your full yourself. And I'm not saying your full self, because, but you didn't bring yourself. And also you didn't articulate how you do what you do. And I still now struggle with that at times. So there's a, so why you? I think there is a, there is still without being, I get that struggle to say. It, there's still somewhere in me a humility or a recognition that brilliance exists everywhere, and I'm no better in some ways. Or I'm, I just happen at times I happen to be the right place. I think a lot of the job opportunities come because you're in the right place in front of the right person, and emotionally something yeah. flicks switch. Yeah, and I know that's not in step again with all the sort. Of diverse and inclusive recruitment process but you have to speak to the fact that humans sit in front of humans you can't hide from that connection yeah, thing yeah so I'd say do. yeah you absolutely do um and I think you've said some more really interesting you've, you've raised some more really interesting points in there because you've talked about the intellect and the, the kind of the qualifications so you've referred to your a-levels and your degree and um I kind of want to then can take you back right to the beginning of the of your story where you said that they recognised at school that you had some capability with people. So I've had the absolute pleasure and privilege of working with you as a as in a in a kind of client partnership arrangement. And your capability with people and your leadership style is is quite different to other people that we that we that we know and love in the rail industry and it's that kind of the capability with people that I think is one of the the skills that we need more of moving forward but it's really interesting for me that you've said well yeah to my surprise get I'm one of six and then when I ask you why that might be you kind of referring back to your qualifications that you got yeah. at, at school and at, at uni but what we're seeing all the way through, and you brought it up yourself, is that you're the common thread through everything that you have done so far, and I'm confident that you will continue to do. It's people. Yeah. It's how you are with people. I'm just, I'm fascinated by no, it. No, so I, I, so I, I kind of wanted to draw atten your attention. And, and I'm mindful that if people do that. listen to this, I'm trying to give some precision to the answer, but it's a, it's a constant point of reflection for me. Yeah. So when you talk about, when I talk about fluffing interviews, I think... I wish I could really consistently and concisely say without hesitation why that is. But I, and I, I don't think I really fully understand it yet. And maybe I never will. I, I do know to be true that, um, and as you know, I've, I've had four weeks off because I'm pretty sick and all that good yeah. stuff. I, the, the physical and emotional impact of being in, back in work on Monday, I could have graphed it, you know, just being back around people. I, yeah. I get, I get physical and emotional reward and energy from being around people. And I've, I've, I've learned from, from probably in my late teens at school that, if, that you can have very mutually beneficial relationships with everyone. But it's all, okay, so this is good for me, but it kind of amplifies if they get something from it too. Yeah. 
and and then what what society does and what professional work in a western country does and both in my school at university network rail and the red is and it needs to be more of is it will reward you if you can generate brilliance from other people absolutely you yeah. know and if you can and, and people whether it's imposter syndrome and there's that kind of often on social media like stay humble but, but i think look I, I could take a different view and say well like, look what i've done i've done these things i don't need to do that I've, if people want to recognize what i've done then fantastic mm. what i found works is if you recognize in yourself a capability but don't talk about it too much but put your your first foot forward is always what is the other what is the people or the, the person or the people in front of me feeling yeah. What do they want to get from this conversation, whether it's about home, life, work, whatever it is? Um, and how can I help? And what I'm lucky, I'm just lucky, I think, to a degree that I get energy from that. That's I find yeah. that rewarding. And I respect and recognize in our industry that a lot of people don't because they get their energy from some of the technical wizardry we need to have. Yeah. I would just, and this is perhaps a bit more pointed, I would just question that perhaps too often in the past, and if we're not careful, we promote those types of people who have got brilliance into the place where they have to spend all their time talking to people trying to read emotion and get what's and it, it don't work yeah it is my experience you get yeah. this you get you get a plateau of, of 80 20 in the main because effort will get you so well somehow but you won't get brilliance enough sustained brilliance that isn't about me it's, it's about the individuals yeah and there's a whole different conversation there for me around how we interview people so if you, when you said you've fluffed interviews, I would be willing to put at least a tenor on it that the people that were interviewing you were perhaps not as skilled at getting the best out of the interview process. So it works from both ways. And I think what worked for organisations in the past in terms of tell me about a time when you did, yeah. um, you know, and the whole kind of competency-based approach or the technical approach or even psychometric testing, you know, when, when we're trying to encourage diversity and inclusion and, and encourage different types of people onto the railway, um, we've got to recognise that psychometric tests don't work for everyone. You no. know, if, if, you, if you have ADHD or any of the kind of autism spectrum disorders, then it doesn't work for you. But no. that doesn't mean you're not going to do a bloody cracking job on the railway. It just means that our interview process to encourage you to come and join us is not right. No, so agreed. there's a whole other thing there, but I'm going to take us back to you landing back in York. Thank you yes. for answering that question as well. I appreciate it. You've given us some real brilliant food for thought. You've landed in York. You're working with Rob. He was formative in terms of, of what happens next. So tell us what happens next. Well, so again, if I, uh, the, my first interaction with Rob was pretty frosty, those, and but I stood my ground. I think that was that was a key key moment i think um we were talking about east coast mainline service specs ironically given that's still happening a debate now but right. um and, but we, we we went on from there and i think i'd like to say that I, he he saw in me someone who worked hard someone that, that thought again I, I say thought differently nina I, I question someone that thought about things in a way that he felt was a little bit different and a bit stimulating for others and added a dynamic that perhaps was complementary to what he wanted to build as a region so when the role came up, and again, it's a really, I don't, I always share this story of people ask, because I did the interview process, it was hellish, it was about six stages, and ended up with like a five-person panel, uh, and he broke the news to me afterwards, I got the job, but what was fast, fantastic about it is, he, he knew that, like many people, I hadn't, I wasn't anywhere near the finished article, and, in, and for a route direct compared to other appointees, I was pretty green, and he, we just had a chat where he said, look, you've got 
everything you need. You will be successful, but you also need to know that if it doesn't work out, this, I will tap you on the shoulder and we'll redirect you. It won't be the end of your career. It won't be terminal. You won't forget. You won't throw away all the good like, work you've done and the reputation you've built. And it was so liberating because it meant from day one, I said, right, I'm game on. Everything I want to do in terms of shifting a, the role from what I think historically and perhaps in some quarters is still quite operational and quite input driven uh, about railway stuff, I would make predominantly about people. It would be about yeah. why are people doing what in any situation that, that was about, whether it's improving performance, learning from an incident, a safety incident, a change program, a financial challenge. Uh, and where is the people conversation in that in, in improving it? And, I, and again, what I do now is very different to what I did four years ago on day one. I, think if you, I imagine if you ask the people who were working around me four years ago, they'll, they'll say the same thing because my, my nuts to everyone is literally every day is a school day. Every, yeah. and, and don't be ashamed of that. You will be better if you keep trying and you keep learning and you keep being receptive to what people are telling you. But, uh, but what will be true is that there is, a, there is an almost irritating, in some people's mind, persistent, okay, where's the people stories? Where's the people dynamic? How are we... Yeah. How are we making this? And this is the happy centre of what I'm doing now as a route director. How are we pursuing better portraying service performance, better safety outcomes, and great financial management through the lens of creating a great place to work? Because one one thing that has never been true enough for me and remains even even perhaps further away from the truth now for rail is that it doesn't have enough advocacy for those that it employs. There's not enough yeah. people in rail. I think who walk around saying, "I love rail. It's brilliant." Yeah. And even worse, it doesn't have enough advocacy from the customers that we serve, both in terms of like people who get on it and move and the goods we use. And and I think unless we focus on, my view is, unless you focus on creating a great place to work that's relentlessly great, great performance, not just a great soft place to work, yeah. you aren't going to swift that dial. And that is our challenge over the next over the next few years. Still, we are not sure of problems that we understand. I would offer, mm. we are, and we perhaps come on to this later on. We are sure of a an ability to unite, probably rationalise and focus this capability on fixing some of our core issues and improve. Fixing, stroke making better than they are. I think that's important as well. We're not yes. turning all that. Yeah. Yeah. There is there's lots of good stuff happening. There's yeah. lots of opportunity to yeah. get it even better. Yes, agreed. Even better. Yeah. If. Yeah. Are you are you able to share um and it doesn't I don't need a long list, but if you think about over the last four years what you have done and how your approach has been slightly different to how other people are doing it in terms of that people-centred leadership. What what would be an example on a day-to-day -day basis of what that might look like? Yeah, well, so I'll, I'll share I share I'll share what I do without comparison to others because everyone will do it. Some people may do the same yeah. differently, but the I have a I have committed successfully to very regular time with individuals in my team. So when we talk about one-to-ones, I think it's broadly, my experience on the receiving is it's always been lip service. You know, even yeah. though I love I love a lot of my previous bosses and those I've spoken about positively now, one-to-ones uh, weren't a free, regular occasion, uh, a regular thing. And I'm a firm believer in if I'm going to get the best out of people, I need to see them a lot. Yeah. You know, you need, I need the ability to metaphorically or physically put a hand on the shoulder and just give them a nudge. Doing it every four weeks ain't going to cut it. So even now, the first, again, for a live example, I've been four weeks off, I've cleared the back end of my week and I've had one-to-ones so far in the rest of my, with all my direct reports. Because if they aren't clear what I expect from them, what they expect from me, what we're trying to do, their ability to lead 2,200 people in the wrong direction very is very immediate, 
Richard Owens is my infrastructure director, has about a thousand people. If he's not clear what he's doing, he can he can move the boat in the <laughs> wrong direction quite quickly. But equally, yeah. he's not going to have an emotional connection with me that gets that added value, I think, if he's not seeing me enough. Yeah. So uh, a relentless commitment to that that uh, I thought was an obvious but has been very difficult to sustain. And people at every level of coach try to coach me out of it. You can't give your, that much time to your people. I just refuse to accept it. And it's hard. Some people have to go a couple of weeks without it. Some of the team may not like that much attention. And you kind of have to bend a little bit, but it's a commitment they have from me and we work on it and it's, some, and it's maturing well. I think the other thing I've done um, that was somewhat different, not radical, but underpinned by a lot of reading and listening I did to companies that are in the main, by whatever measure they operate in, successful. And I remember reading a lot about Bob Iger who runs Disney now for the second time yeah I, I'm aware that Disney's often trotted out as a Disney a great customer service they are a very very successful company but they're not without their issues and if you look at executive transition Bob Iger's had to come back because he didn't get it right the first time around but one thing he talked about is he runs a asset heavy customer focused worldwide business it's not yeah. un, it, it might feel different but there's a lot of similarity he would, he would at times and for quite sustained periods have his worldwide executive team together twice a week. So I very quickly went, hang on a minute, why am I only seeing my team every four weeks? And then why am I surprised when they don't really get on and work collaboratively and break the functional silos that railways work in? So for three and a half of the four years in this job, I've had them together every Monday for six hours. Right. Every Monday. Oh. I'm not going to pretend for one minute every, every hour has been successful Every hour has been useful. You know, I still get people working at the window, thinking I've got on board. But that, so what? So again, that commitment to time, Nina, to your people individually and your people who, who as a team, I think is sounds very simple. It's is incredibly difficult, but it's the difference maker because it 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 is the foundation for what people will turn the multiplier impact or the cast the leadership shadow. If you're if you're not in touch with your people, driving a message building a relationship, all the stuff about authenticity, trust, 360 feedback, you forget it. You can't have 360 feedback with conversations with people you don't really know. You yeah. can't do it, not, not adequately. It's a time thing, and you have to be brave enough to do it, and you have to be relentless in an industry that will pull you, as in these roles, every single hour will present you with something you probably didn't quite know would come up, operationally, yeah. politically, yeah. people. You have, to, you have to stick at it. And you, yeah. and you can't shy away from it. And the results, they're not quite where I'd like them to be in terms of trained service performance, but in terms of some, of, some of the business results are a direct consequence of that, yeah. direct consequence of it. And I think what I'm hearing, and you've, you've helped me recruit a couple of people, um, I've attracted some, I think, superstars from some of the talks recently, and they're coming because they're hearing part of what they want to do is work in that environment. Mm. You know, if you, and, and that's, back to that kind of imposter syndrome I'm thinking well really but okay that's what you say then I'll take it what it is because, yeah, yeah. but there is, I am comfortable to say there's some, there's some logic driven by research driven by peer reviews on big successful entities that I put into place and I would say to anybody anywhere whether it's Andrew at the top of our business mm. you know or uh, the groups of people who have the hellish job in my business of running sectional teams or driver managers in the operating world or station managers if you do not see your individually your team and your team frequently enough, you will not get them where you need to get to. Yeah. It just won't. Yeah. It just won't happen. Yeah. And that will be the biggest change I would say to anyone. In, and it will be the first. If I if I ended up in a new job in the next two or three years, people will need to expect that from day one, 
that is what I'll be talking about. Yeah. Where are you? How often are you seeing your people? Yeah. And it makes so much sense. When you explain it like that, it makes so much sense. We both know because we, you know, you kind of work in an environment where everybody's busy. There's too much to do. There's, there's yeah. never enough hours in the day. So having meetings with people, it, it kind of, oh, another meeting and a six hour meeting, blimey, you know, that's that's a big commitment of time. But everything you're saying makes complete sense. Um, I could touch about this for hours. I need to be mindful of time. I'm going to ask you one more question on this before we move on to me getting my magic wand out and um, and asking you for your, your three wishes. Just one more question on this, Matt, specifically in relation to what you've just been saying. Obviously, during the heady days of 2020, we yeah. couldn't all be together in a room for six no. hours. So we you kind of everybody reverted on to, to doing what we're doing now on the video call. Um were you key were you really champing at the bit to get back to having everyone in the room? Or do you do you think that video calling has its place and you've continued to use it? Does it make that much of a difference to have people physically together? There's a few things that so try and keep me to time in it because again, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm times I know I'm not I'm I'm not very pithy. So look, um, so I just we, we I sustained my approach during COVID, hard as it was. Yeah. We, that time yes, it was on Teams. Um, consequently, when I was talking to Andrew Haynes a couple of weeks ago about some of this stuff, I'm not where I thought I would be, but we lost a year, I think, because we weren't face to face. What do I mean by that? In terms of we know from our engagement scores that I've done we we successfully grown a real level of engagement, penetrated two or three levels down in, in my business. But we've not got deep enough. And I think part of that is because it wasn't just the, the ability to not directly see the direct reports or the kind of senior managers. It became more difficult, not impossible, but to see those people to, delivering in the sharp end of the business in the fresh air or, you know, the operational environments. Mm. Um, and so there is no doubt, so no doubt, and I, I don't run a business that accepts that you can lead people without seeing them physically. Yeah. But I also very much enjoy, I've got, I've got a young family, one of some very, very difficult personal circumstances, one of my children. Life is a pain, you know, life is unpredictable. And great people can, can be and should be trusted to work flexibly within all the, all the advantages that we as a developed modern Western world can, can enjoy. This call is done remotely. Would I yeah. prefer to do it to team? Yep. Would it have taken 16 weeks probably to get in the diary? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's... <laughs> So it's fine. You know, it's fine for what it is. But but I would say if you can't sit in front of a direct report on a frequent enough basis, and you may say, again, if I've got section managers ever listen to this, say I've got now about 35 direct reports, I've got to fix that as a standard point. But if you can't sit in front of them frequently enough, you will never be as good as you can both be. Doesn't mean you won't get it done, but we're not an industry that isn't talking about getting it done. We get it done most days, mm. but we aren't as good as we could be. Yeah. And it's, so use Teams. Don't travel all the time if you don't have to. Be kind, you know, look after yourself to that degree. I'm not traveling this week. It's the first weekend of the first week back after being ill for that reason. But but you've but your to your question, again, I think it's the third time I've answered it in that con you have to physically be with them yeah. at the time. I yeah. talked about metaphorically, can you put your hand on their shoulder and say, You okay? You're doing yeah. all right? Do you know what you need to do and can you get on with it? Yeah. It's a real it's a massive subject. I was, we, we work remotely. My business model for 10 and a half years has been remote working. We will never have an office. It doesn't work um, for our business model. I love being with my team. We do it once a month. We all yep. meet up in Manchester. So we come from various different parts of the, of the North at the moment, although um, 
nearly hot off the press, but I can't reveal it yet. There will be kind of South representation as well, which is very exciting. However, with that bringing everybody together and being in one room together for a day is massive. It's yes. just massive. In terms of that connection, we, you know, our business is all around connecting people, but we need that connection amongst ourselves to remind ourselves who we are what we do, why we do it, and how good we are. So it's that that feeling of coming away yesterday. I was absolutely bouncing off the walls. It was amazing. Physical, safe, in the same space. Works yeah, really well. I agree. So three wishes. What we're going to do, I'm going to give you three wishes for what you would like to change yeah. where you think the transformation would be most powerful in this wonderful industry that we both work in. So those, those one one of the ongoing challenges that my own team give to me is that I'm too. I'm, I'm, there's a def again. One of the definitions is ideas fountain, like just constantly full of ideas. Is that one? Yeah. That's, so, so if you were to ask me tomorrow, I might give you another three. And if you ask yeah. me tomorrow, might, but but I right. can't. To anchor it in some of my current thinking, there's probably three things I I want to play a part in, if not having a magic wand, but would dictate the industry needs to run at now, and yeah. some of them will take a while. So I I don't think yet. I think the whole industry structure is OPEX inefficient. I think we, uh, we, for the sake of trying to collaborate ourselves to death, we've got too many entities running a railway. That's maybe quite controversial. And people might talk about remapping tox and all that kind of stuff. But, but look, you've got 14 routes in five regions and an, and an emptying different tox and fox running different things under different, different commercial arrangements. It requires a huge load of a huge amount of overhead to make that work effectively as we can. And it is an assistant designed for the customer. Mm. And GBR is what it is, and it's, the, it's certainly something driven by the right intent. But, I, but we've got, if I had a magic wand, I would, I would streamline a lot. I would remove some of the operating entities. I'd, make, I'd, re, I'd, re, I'd strengthen the regulator to allow more mono operating monopolies, but I'd strengthen the regulator to do that. And I'd put the focus again on how do you deliver the best customer experience yeah. fewer fewer brands fewer ticketing fewer nr entities so it's simpler and it costs less frankly so that's one yeah love it um, i love controversial matt as you know well, so, I'd, so, so i'd like to it's just off off the mid like i'd live by I've yeah mine gently controversial yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's too much there's too many people trying to operate a system that should be quite simple and that's that and i'd like to i'd be a bit more pushy on that um i think the other thing i talk about is quite personal to me and very, again, very sort of pertinent is the railway. I, again, my son is is wheelchair dependent, but not disabled. So he's, he can walk, but, but he has to be in a wheelchair because he can't regulate his behaviour. Um, and I've used that to drive me to a position where we're doing some great stuff with people like Northern about how we make stations quite accessible. That feels really odd with where the government is and where the, where the whole ticket office thing is at the moment, personally. And, you know, that's a challenge for me. So the, if I had a magic wand... I would I would stop pretending that capital spending was a reason why you couldn't make the railway physically accessible for all. Yeah. Our national economics are what they are, but we could we could tomorrow decide that we have we will have a railway that is that is physically accessible to everybody in the country. We decide yeah. not to for a whole load of reasons, and we rely on we rely on um, what I would call public figures who have accessible who have accessibility challenges to drive us to be better. We need to be better ourselves. I, I have failed massively at some of my changing places issues at Leeds. Um, I, we are not where we need to be on that. And I would make a magic wand would, would be a complete game changer. Yeah, absolutely. And the third and final piece would be that 
be, again, probably the operated complexity multiplied when you look at buses, trains, planes, automobiles, Uber, you know, I, I would very much focus on using, if I had to, using the regional scale of NR to drive a far more integrated transport system. Yeah. You know, there are some there are some great examples of man. I know I know Manchester quite well. Manchester trying its best and moving through the gears. It has the motive. It has tram. It has train. Uh, yeah. It has long distance. All that. So, but it it's hard work, and it's there's no real reason. There's no there's no physical. There's no uh, like uh, innovative reason why we can't do it. It just takes a coordinated effort by a number of people with the same aim to mean that if you get a train to Leeds but want to go four miles from like train station. The mode of transport you choose to take is aligned to the train and vice versa. It's Herculean. Don't get me wrong. I'm not. I'm not. I did timetabling in rail, and that's hard enough. So I'm not. <laughs> but you are, you gave me a magic wand, so I haven't. Yes. I haven't reality get in the way. But yeah. wouldn't it be great if we had a simpler railway system that was accessible to all and was integrated with other modes of transport, all of yeah, which of course yeah. driven by by the people working it. Yeah. That's not a wish. That's just we've got to get on with that. That's a given, and it that runs through the whole thing, doesn't it? I it is it is the leadership challenge for for network rail. Yeah. Not points removed, not points failures, not hot weather prep and all that. That's all important. But the leadership yeah. challenge in that sphere. Yeah. And for anybody who works in rail at a leadership executive level and other transport modes, that is the challenge of the 2020s, if you ask me. Yeah, perfect. Perfect summary. Um, really just yeah, fantastic. And I I've got no disagreement with any of those. I would I think that would be easy to say though, right? we could all buy into exactly easy, easy yeah. to say not necessarily very easy to yeah. do but if we were all facing in the same direction that would be a start yeah agreed um what motivates you matt what motivates or inspires you so some of my guests will share a, a quote or a book they've read or a particular leader that they they kind of are inspired by you know what what's your go-to if you kind of because we all have them don't we we wake up in the morning and think right. even me even me i sometimes wake up and think oh god right i've got to do the day what yeah. where do you get your energy i know you get your energy from people it's kind of what is there anything any kind of a go-to for you that inspires you uh, so i've said i'm still very this is very much a work in progress for me working out how to work so i don't think this is a precise answer but i'll give some flavour to how what 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 I go through so I'm somewhere in me driven by again I think upbringing experiences is just a relentless uh, it's sort of drive to continue to do better to do more to be active and I've kind of very much now taken I will listen to the counsellors Matt you need to slow down you need to be a bit more measured but I'm not sure I'm on board with that I'm going to push and if you want me to work with you that what you'll get is you'll get eight out of ten nine out of ten days that are brilliant you might have to suffer one that's a bit bit rubbish because I break the bound but so I'm very much driven to doing better better as sort of than I have done previously and probably just trying to exercise some of those demons of my past where I thought I could have done that better in hindsight could have got straight A's maybe you know could have got my first class degree could have should have would have that all of that's going on and, and I said right at the beginning and I'm quite comfortable with this that I had a outwardly might have seen a really comfortable relatively comfortable upbringing but there were some pretty horrific months and years in my younger and I, days and I'm sure that's driving some of this I think then more, but more, uh, more kind of accessible to everyone is that everyone, so my crutch, and I'm, I, I have watched, there's a series called The West Wing, which is about the life in the American yeah. presidency. 
I think it's about this seven or eight series, about 157 episodes, give or take, and I watched that back to back about eight times. Oh my you know? goodness! And, and when I was back in hospital in the last four weeks, I, that's what I watched. It's like a, it's yeah. like my comfort blanket. Yeah. But there is some stuff in there about teamship, about leadership, about amazingly capable people who are brilliant in their field, untouched in their field, and there's a little screenplay, I know, but who can operate in an environment where they can go at each other and argue with each other. But it never, it's never put. It's about the greater good, about trying yeah. to do good. So there's so many hooks in that for me. Um, but I'm, I've, I've read, I, I audible, I don't read anymore. You know, I audible was lazy. I, right. I audible most things ranging from sports stories to business stories to I've just read Tom Felton's book, who's a um, Draco in Harry Potter. You know, so right, the, okay. any, any, bre- any breadth, as I, ch- I tend to read most things because everyone's got insight. You can learn something everywhere and you can always add if you choose to, learning into a work environment. I think there's there's a couple of things that I sort of really take away and I go to. So um, I think as a theme, what I've taken for all of those is if you want to win, if you want to succeed, it's never linear, ever. And whether you look at successful against sports teams, businesses, individuals, they will always say it's never a linear path. And actually, they all say to, that their greatest learning and their ability to become better than they ever thought they could is because they tried and failed really hard. Yeah. And they really failed. And they, yeah. But they were able to get up off the mat and go for it. You, you Google that, there's about a million quotes on that sort of stuff, but it's true. And that that has enabled me um, to, I guess, that, that helps me in, embrace the gambler in me. Right. So I don't, I don't irrationally yeah. gamble at work, you know, but it helps yeah. me you know, roll the dice. Yeah. You're not going to hurt anyone and you're not knowingly wasting money, give it a go because you've got to try and push it forward. Yeah. And then I think the I, sort of in the spirit of being brave, but is that there's a well-known quote, I should have remembered the name, about um, never doubting, you know, that a small group of people can really change the world because it's the only thing they've ever had. Yes. This is a bit corny, but... Yeah. I tried to think of that. Can you imagine? I, I lead 2,200 people. What if that small group was 2,200? You know, what if that was 40,000? Because that, I think, is what we're dealing with as an industry now. If the, if, if the industry continues to rely on people like Andrew Hayes to, to make the difference, we will, we will never progress because he's many things, but he's not, he's not a magician. No. And he's only one man, despite exactly. what he's got. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so everybody's got to step up and try to do more than they think is possible yeah. and see what happens. Don't hurt anyone. Don't waste any money. Just see what happens. Just see what happens. Yeah. And it will, it will make a, that's the type of thing that I think about every day. And it, yeah. and it, and it, then it tends to work more often than not. It's, and it's the word that you've just used. It's be brave enough to do that. Yeah. The courage of your convictions. Obviously, you weigh up your risks, like you've said. We don't want to do anything that's, that's going to risk safety. We don't want to waste no. any money. But to have the confidence to be braver and be bolder about some of the stuff that we're doing to try new things because it might just work what if it does yeah agreed. yeah brilliant agreed. thank you i could i could honestly talk to you all day i find you really interesting i love your ideas around leadership i love the examples that you've shared with us today and i'm really grateful to you for being a guest on the intuitive insights right. podcast map i've really enjoyed it thank you so like much. a little little celeb thing so. <laughs> Even if it's just me, and you, the group. me yeah. and you and my wife are the listeners. Well, clearly I'll make my team listen to it because that's my prerogative. But 10 views, I'll be happy with that. We'll definitely break the 10. I promise okay. you. I promise you that. Thank you so much, Matt. No problem. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Thanks, Nina. 
My huge thanks to Matt for sharing his thoughts and his insights with us on today's episode of the Intuitive Insights podcast. This was genuinely one conversation that I could have gone on for hours. I find Matt so interesting. I hope you did too. Please join us for the next episode in a couple of weeks of the Intuitive Insights podcast. Thank you.